episode 298, The Intersection of Value-Based Payments and Behavioral Health, also the rise of telepsychiatry. Today, I speak with Don Fowles, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I was really vexed the other day when I read on Twitter, first rule of thumb, stay away from Twitter. But I read on Twitter someone bashing telehealth because for many older Americans, going to the doctor is the only thing on their social calendar. Mm, Okay. So we celebrate the idea of paying a cardiologist or a nephrologist or an orthopedic surgeon or some other specialist how much in FFS payments to be a paid friend for seven minutes. So we're going to expect these expensive specialists to provide mental and behavioral health support when they have no particular mental health training. And at the same time, we're going to weirdly slam telehealth for not enabling this obviously failing and expensive model to continue. And I'll tell you how I know it's failing. We have an epidemic of loneliness in this country. So maybe instead of this serpentine logic, we should instead actually directly address the epidemic of loneliness. Maybe we should directly address mental health and behavioral health. Another oddity with this whole telehealth bash is how fast telepsychiatry services are taking off with COVID and how much in general people like it. Granted, Not sure about the elderly cohort who want to go see their doctor for the outing aspect of it. But if we're talking in generalities here, telehealth, telepsychiatry has been a boon for patients able to access behavioral health and mental health services. Today, I speak with Don Fowles, MD. Dr. Fowles is president of Don Fowles & Associates based in Scottsdale, Arizona. He's also president of the Arizona Psychiatric Society. Dr. Fells talks to us today about the importance of considering behavioral health when committing to value-based payment models or the management of populations. But we bookend the topic by me taking the opportunity to quiz Dr. Fells on the impact of telehealth on behavioral and mental health. Two big points of emphasis are integrated data and the vitalness of industry stakeholder collaborations. Just to clarify some terms before we dive in here, mental health is a subset of behavioral health. So if we're talking about managing populations of patients, managing both is essential. Mental health is typically, people say, has to do with substance abuse and people's thoughts and feelings. Behavioral health, meanwhile, has more to do with the specific actions people take and how they respond in various scenarios. Obviously, both are impacted by social determinants of health in a big way. And as more and more evidence comes out, it becomes more important to integrate mental and behavioral health services within almost any site of care or any site of care looking to improve patient outcomes and possibly succeed in a value-based world. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Don Fowles, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Good to be here. What do you think about telehealth and and mental health services? Is it something that you feel is fairly pervasive at this juncture and fairly likely to continue? Or are we looking at a blip in the continuum and once we're looking at COVID in the rearview mirror, there's not going to be, you know, mental health specialists and psychiatrists and using telehealth anymore? I think it's here to stay for a variety of reasons. One is it's just a lot easier You don't have to get in a car, drive to a doctor's office or provider's office, sit there if they're late, 
and then get back in the car. You don't have to miss work. You can do it at night. It's just so much more convenient. And the other thing is, you know, I've been involved with a telesite company for the last 10 years. And now it's a national company. It's seen about 40,000 visits a month now. When we first started it, I was a little skeptical about the quality and how, how it would compare with face-to-face. The surprise was most people really like it. And it compares very favorably with outcomes for face-to-face visits. Another thing that was an unexpected positive outcome was just being able to stay with the same provider, even if you move. And the last thing I wanted to say about this, so I'm, our um, governor here in Arizona, Doug Ducey, has actually taken a huge interest in mental health in particular. Uh, some of that's related to the opioid crisis. Some of it is the un- very unfortunate increasing suicide rate, particularly among children and adolescents. And when COVID hit, he issued an executive order that basically mandated payment for telehealth services during the pandemic. And I asked him how he was thinking about telehealth and would it continue beyond COVID. And his response was, it was very interesting. He said, as long as I'm governor, it's going to be in play. Telehealth will continue the the way that we have it in the executive order. And then he turned and he said, and the only question I have for you, doctor, is why did it take your industry so long to get to this? (laughs) And I didn't have a good answer. He's right. He's absolutely right. It should have happened a long time ago, but it has now. And I think the experience has been very positive. So I think it's here to stay by and large. And when you say the experience has been very positive, do you mean on both the clinician side as well as the patient side? So you're not going to have a whole host of of clinicians saying, ah, this, you know, like we want to go back to the way that it was. The preponderance of both providers and people accessing care patients, I think, really like it. There's always going to be that small subset of naysayers, no matter what. You know, now, you know, large medical groups, we have some very large medical groups here in Arizona and and elsewhere around the country. And access to behavioral health services has been an issue because it's been so dependent on face-to-face and in-office visits. Now, with telehealth, they can contract with a company like FastSec or someone else to provide those services instantly. And so now there's coverage in these medical clinics that there never was before. And it's it's there's just so many positive things to recommend to it. I, I think it's here to stay. And do you feel like telehealth all by itself in a fee-for-service world will get us to the place that we need to be relative to mental health in this country? Or is it still an imperative in order to level up the degree of emphasis that clinicians place on driving mental health outcomes that we need to have a value-based or value-centric world? Now, the focus is on, hey, you know, we're paying you all this money, but what are the results? What sort of outcomes are you producing if you're just treating people to be treating them, but you're not mindful of what you're trying to produce as a, as a result or outcome? You know, we got to change that. There's a lot of attention to value-based purchasing. And so one simple example would be, let's say I'm a psychiatrist in practice and patients are, and I'm getting paid $100 a visit just to keep it simple. And in a value-based model, the payer may say, hey, let's do it differently. I'm going to pay you $85 just for seeing the patient, but you get the rest of the the $15 if you produce an outcome. And oh, by the way, if you produce a really good outcome, I'll give you 10 more dollars for $110 for that visit. And so it's really trying to align the payment with the outcomes and services provided rather than having them so disconnected the way they've been over the years. The way that you're expressing that, it's still episode-based. Whereas when I typically think of managing populations, I more think about it 
either relative to the episode or kind of relative to a, you know, per patient per month. You know, will you take on risk and, and you'll manage the mental health needs of this population? And for that, we will pay you, you know, $200 a month. And these are the outcomes that we're looking to see. So the example I gave was it was a basic one that's early on in the continuum of value-based models. But as you go through the continuum at the other extreme is capitation, there are different types of models in between that fee-for-service that I mentioned earlier all the way to capitation for a population. There's a lot of interest in those models. My opinion has lagged in getting to the capitated models, but there's there are also some good reasons for that because the infrastructure on the provider side is not there to do it responsibly. It takes a it takes a little different expertise and capability to manage the dollars and the care when you're taking care of a population. Providers are just now learning how to do that. In capitated per member per month model, or you know nothing for nothing, even in step one, what does good look like? If I'm going if I'm a payer and I'm going to evaluate how well you're doing and do you actually deserve that extra 15 bucks what factors am I evaluating I was actually serving as a medical director for a a large health plan here we created four or five performance metrics for our behavioral health providers and we attached dollars to them so that if you met them you got a certain amount of money, and if you didn't, you didn't get anything, or you might get penalized. And so, one of them actually was the follow-up care after inpatient hospitalization. When you think about how things go in our very siloed healthcare system, if you know you go to the hospital, you get care, and then you leave, and it's like there's a disconnect between the hospital world and the outpatient world. But from my understanding, so, that that HEDIS measure specifically applied to PCPs. So, is it that if they're released from a psychiatric they're in the hospital right. with some kind of psychiatric concern, then they got to go to their outpatient mental health practitioner. Correct. That's Not, exactly it. Okay, got it. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. You know, some of the other measures we actually tied to housing. If you're taking care of 100,000, how many of these people actually have housing? How many of them need and have you moved the needle on that at all? So it, it's actually a good way to get started on value-based purchasing. And one of the things that allows you to do that's very important is collect data on how things are going, how people are performing. And so the challenge for the industry has been, our, like a lot of things, our data has been very siloed. So there's been behavioral health data, medical, pharmacy, and so forth, but they have not been integrated up until recently. The ability to integrate those three and other data sets with each other by member, by provider at an individual or aggregate level is really a relatively new phenomenon. And unless you have that data information, it is really hard to responsibly develop a capitated model or bundled payments or things that really to do them well, you need to know what's going on with a patient population so that you're paying someone, you know, realistically. Let's go back to those four to five metrics that you came up with, because I thought that was interesting. So one of them you had mentioned is the follow-up. Within seven days after release for any sort of psychiatric condition, they need to go see their outpatient provider. What are the other three? I wasn't quite sure what you meant with the housing example. Okay, so for this particular population, they have serious mental illness. And in the industry, that's a designation for people who have chronic psychotic disorders like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Some of those folks, unfortunately, wind up homeless. So if you have a subset of your population that's homeless, it's hard to have an impact on their health care. So one of the things that we did, I'll give you a concrete example. One of our providers was seeing about 10,000 people with serious mental illness. They had about 1,000 people who were homeless. 
And so we created a measure that said, hey, if you can cut that by 25 to 50 percent, we'll give you a performance bonus based on, you know, reducing the homelessness from 1,000 to 750 or 500 and continue to do that till we got to zero. The good thing about it is it's getting everyone, plan and provider, focused on achieving an outcome and everyone works together to do it because typically plans are incentivized by states to do that as well. So it's a pretty positive thing. The other couple measures, and there's a whole list, there's a list of about 50 of these that you can pick and choose from. But the other one that was really important was readmissions to the hospital. So some of our providers were seeing patients on an outpatient basis. And unfortunately, if they decompensate, they would wind up in the hospital. But they would get, you know, the as soon as they got in the hospital, the outpatient provider kind of lost track of them. And the hospital would not communicate with the outpatient provider and vice versa. So the person would get stabilized in the hospital, do well, then to get discharged, only to go back but to the outpatient provider, but the outpatient provider didn't know what the game plan was. And so just continued with what he or she was doing to begin with. Invariably, it doesn't work. So the person winds up back in the hospital. So the readmission rates, actually, this happens all over the country. But just by way of example here, one of our providers was in the, in the low 40% range, which is huge. In our industry in behavioral health, 10 to 15% readmission rate is, is a reasonable to be expected almost readmission mission rate. So in the 40%, you're, you're way the heck out as an outlier. So we created a performance measure to reduce the readmission rate from say like 40 down to 20% in a year's time, which is ambitious. But what it drove was the outpatient provider and the hospital providers getting together to collaborate with each other and figure out how do we make this happen. So we let you outpatient provider know what we did in the hospital and you let us know what you did in the outpatient basis. And by collaborating, our chances for that person staying out of the hospital are much greater. And it sounds like when you said there's 50 to choose from, I'm, I'm inferring what you meant by that is that there's like 50 HEDIS measures. There's a lot of HEDIS measures. So you're kind of cherry picking, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. You're selecting which ones of those HEDIS measures are most applicable to a mental health setting. That's exactly, and there are a lot of HEDIS measures, and then there's some non-HEDIS measures too that we use. But that's that you got the concept exactly. Relating those performance measures back to the journey towards value-based care that we were talking about, are payers using this subset of measures to help them determine whether their pop health strategies are are working? Yeah, they are being used in that way. And when you see a provider who's doing you know reasonably well, then it's time to consider a bundled payment or a capitated payment or something along those lines. So there's a, a clinic here that's taking care of about 10,000 people with serious mental illness. They've gotten rewarded for performance with regard to four or five measures for the last couple of years. Now the question is, okay, we have enough data. Let's take a look at it. Medical, behavioral, and pharmacy and really see what's going on with this population. Is there a way to create some aggregate groups? So for example, can we find out of that 10,000, can we find a group of people who have diabetes and schizophrenia? And the answer is yes, you can. So let's say we find a thousand of those members that have have that problem. Then you can look at the data, the utilization cost data and say, hey, you know what? On average, over the course of the year, each of these members costs $10,000 $10,000 just to pick a number. So we can do the math, multiply 10 by 1,000 and come up with a bundled arrangement for that population. So let's say we're gonna, we've done the math, we've looked at the data and we're gonna pay this organization 
$10,000 per patient per year to provide all the medical, behavioral, and pharmacy services for this member. So that's one way to go. And actually, there's some examples of that. They're a little more idiosyncratic than systematic right now in our country. There are pockets of this type of activity going on, but there's a lot of interest in it. And, uh, you know, especially chronic illnesses tend to lend themselves to these models because people, the chronic illnesses are there and you can adopt or adapt payment models to fit with those those types of patients year over year. I think it's a real good way to help address some of the, not, not only the outcomes for these members, but the costs associated with them. What I'm inferring from what you're saying is that by putting these outcome measures into place and by actually measuring them. You know, you mentioned that a lot of this begins and ends with the data that you're collecting and the importance of collecting data. Do you actually see when these value-based initiatives are put into place and then this data is collected that outcomes improve over time? Like, do you actually see incremental improvements in, res- in the results and the impact of care? Yeah, you do. You really do. It can be even pretty dramatic. I mean, you can see readmission rates drop from 40 down to 10%. You can see aftercare. I mean, a huge issue has been just being lost to follow-up after hospitalization. And you can see those rates improve dramatically. So yeah, it definitely has had an impact. I think part of the challenge, I mean, look, we're making some good progress and some awfully good things have been done, but I think part of the challenge is, is pausing for a moment and asking, okay, what are the measures that really do speak to outcome? Do we really wanna get really granular and try to measure, did someone get their A1C lab test done? That's getting into the weeds pretty, or do we want to step back and ask, okay, what are we really trying to achieve with this with this population? It's really four things. And these become, I think, the pillars for outcomes. One is patient satisfaction. And then a second one has to do with their clinical and functional outcome. Did they get better disease-wise, but also are they functioning better at home, at work, with their families, and so forth? A third is the whole utilization cost outcome. Is it less expensive? Is it is it more efficient? And then last is access to care. Were you able to get in in a timely manner? Did you get what you need when you needed it? Or did you have to go to the emergency room? And so I think the the ability to step back and say, hey, let's create a report card of outcomes that we track with regard to the this population. And let's see overall how this population did. And I think eventually that's where things are gonna, gonna head. So if anybody is is trying to figure out which measures to go with relative to any kind of outcome study, they should start with those four pillars and make sure that you're pulling, like, whatever you wind up with. You've got, like, one or more in each category. Exactly. That's right. I thought it was interesting what you said before about the bundles, which is kind of the next step in a foray toward a more wholly risk-based or value-based model. That, you know, the example that you gave was patients with diabetes and schizophrenia which is obviously two highly expensive conditions. And I'm assuming that, you know, you look through the data, anybody that's got diabetes, anybody that's got schizophrenia, like now all of a sudden they're a population that, that you know, you want to take special care of. But obviously one of them's a physical condition and one of them's a mental condition. So you have to have collaboration, like true collaboration amongst the endos and PCPs that are involved and the mental health professionals if that population is going to, you know, get a better outcome. Do you see that actually happening? More and more, yes. It's still got a long ways to go, but you see it happening more and more. So 
staying with this example, so in here in Arizona, in the greater Phoenix area, one of the large behavioral health clinics that takes care of this, ten, literally 10,000 people with serious mental illness, has added primary care to all of its nine locations. So the primary care is right there along with the rest of the services. And then they've established relationships with specialty providers around the area to provide, you know, if someone's got a heart problem and they can see a cardiologist and so forth. And, and I think some of the payment models are, are being designed to help support that. Let me ask you this. So there is a commonly held conventional wisdom. Psychiatrists, mental health practitioners, let's just say aren't there's not a whole lot of standardized care there. They are reputed to not use EHR systems or technology and kind of like sit in their offices and do whatever they want effectively. It's like very individual. Like you go to a different psychiatrist, you'll get a totally different diagnosis and a totally different treatment pathway. And I'm contrasting that with what we're talking about now in this conversation that we're having. You know, just like Google Six Sigma anywhere and any of the thousands of millions of pages that are going to pop up will demonstrate with charts and graphs that you cannot improve. You can't have incremental improvements in anything that you're doing unless you have a standardized process that underpins how you're going about it. How are we reconciling these two things? Is conventional wisdom wrong? And that, you know, we've got psychiatrists and all the other clinicians involved in mental health that are actually providing evidence-based medicine, which implies some sort of standardization of, of care and diagnoses and treatment pathway? Or where's the disconnect? So I think the disconnect has been more historic than it is now. For way back when, you know, the approach in psychiatry is really psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which meant a patient went to a doctor's office and it was just that type of relationship, very siloed, very, you know, in and of itself. But that has really changed over the uh, decades. And there's actually analysis is, is relatively rare. I mean, some cities like New York and San Francisco, yes, still, but more and more psychiatrists come out of the office, so to speak, and more and more psychiatrists and psychiatric providers work in clinics for medical groups, community mental health centers, and other places where they're, you know, they're actually working with teams of people to with, with given patients. And so it really has changed. I think the thing that, that remains is a little bit of a dichotomy in our country, which reflects other dichotomies. And that is there's a small subset of psychiatrists who are just, you know, tired of dealing with with insurance and tired of dealing with systems. And so they will have office practices and take cash only. And so it's sort of created this siloed part of the industry. They'll charge at the low end four or $500 an hour and at the high end, $1,000 to $1,200 an hour. That is a small part of the overall provider continuing behavioral health. And by far more people are working in organized settings, for lack of a better term, where there are groups of people and trying to work with each other to achieve an outcome. As you were talking, I was thinking, all right, so this is a 1% versus 99% kind of equation. Pretty much. <laughs> it was one percenters again, right? So 99% then of the patients that are receiving treatment for mental health of any kind, they are being seen by clinicians who are using EHR systems that have evidence-based medicine protocols that are doing diagnostics based on some kind of standard and providing a treatment regimen then based on, again, a set of, of evidence-based guidelines. Right now, there's still way too much more is better and without any real clear, what are we trying to accomplish here? But that's changing and that's a real positive side to value-based care. 
because the question is being asked, it's basically being told, hey, look, we love you. You think you're doing a great work, but I'm not going to pay you as much if you're not achieving a result. And I think that's a, you know, it's a really positive thing. So it's going to force the industry to really look at it differently. Right now, it's amazing. You know, it's just sort of how the industry is evolving. But even today, there are hospitals and residential centers and non-outpatient settings that provide an awful lot of care. And when you ask them, how are you doing? What sort of outcomes you're, you're achieving? They will say, well, the person completed the program here. Well, that's great, but how did they do when they left? That's what you really want to know. One thing that you had mentioned earlier when I took note of was the amount of data that's being collected for the very first time and integrated together. So is that pervasive enough? And, you know, like once you start getting data, then you start getting a feedback loop. And now you start, you know, also incenting better outcomes. Those are could be kind of a perfect storm to move a little bit more toward determining, you know, what the exact right amount of care is, for example, which is starting to standardize things. No, that's right. No, that's exactly right. Because when you start looking at the data, then you have an opportunity to say, okay, out of these 100 patients, these treatment modalities work for them and these other ones did not. And so you're able to say, okay, so from now on, I'll just take the case of someone with depression. We know a combination of medication, antidepressant medication, psychotherapy tends to work better than either one alone or nothing. So our, our standard of care now becomes that, antidepressant plus short-term psychotherapy. And that makes a huge difference. I think one thing in this whole data discussion that is really important is there are now tools that allow for the integration of, you know, medical, behavioral, and pharmacy data. But the other thing that's really, really interesting is the data sets. There are many different types of data sets, but three major ones are from health plans. A second one is from the EHRs and the providers' offices and hospitals. And a third is from health information exchanges. And so the importance of that is any one of those data sets in and of themselves is probably not enough. Claims data, for example, when you think about how claims paid, someone submits a bill and they get paid. That can take a good three months to six months, really. So the data becomes old. But if you have data coming from your electronic health record, that tends to be real time. And then you add pharmacy data to it, prescription data, that tends to be real time. And the challenge then is to integrate these data sets to get a full picture, but that's going on right now. And so it's really allowing people to see, geez, you know, we're seeing what's really going on with this population and these people and really develop much more consistent approaches to treatment than we've ever had before. Inherent in what you just said is that these mental health professionals are using EHR systems. Like that's just a fact. Yeah, a lot, a lot more and more. I think, particularly in the community mental health arena. I mean, there, there's still noticeable areas in our country where they're, where they're not, but it's, it's moving in that direction for sure. You had mentioned antidepressants as a course of therapy, as is in the news. We've got a lot going on in the the pharmaceutical space based on kind of all these factors, this confluence of factors that you mentioned, the data that's coming back, the legislation and the rulemaking that's, that's going on, COVID. How do you feel that the pharmaceutical aspect of mental health care, the pharmacy department, you know, how is this going to be impacted moving forward? forward, if at all. 
It's a very critically important part for a lot of what goes on in behavioral health, the medications and the positive effects they can have, but also a reduction in side effects. And there's a lot being developed. I think it's counterbalanced with, you know, the cost of the medication. You know, there are some issues there. It, I think it's great. Our country, you know, it's it's good to make a fair profit, but but what does that look like and how much is not enough and how much is too much? And certainly in some instances in the, in the pharmaceutical industry, as in a a lot of other industries, there have been those who have really taken advantage and a lot of other people have paid dearly for it. You know, the nice thing, you know, if you have data and facts behind you, it always helps. And if you can show, you know, an outcome with the medications, it really helps. It helps with those conversations. Effectively, what we're talking about is a march toward a more value-based reimbursement model in the mental health space, just like it's right. going on everywhere else. Right. Do you feel like, you know, if we're talking about full comp- capitation or full risk, does that exclude pharmacy or is pharmacy part of that risk model? And if so, does that kind of infer there's been some talk about, you know, value-based pharmaceutical contracting. You know, like there was just that Medicaid rule that came out that basically said it wouldn't impact best price. Do those two worlds collide? If I am a big medical group and I'm taking on risk, do I start then expecting to get drugs also, you know, that are are guaranteed to work? No, that's a fair question. A lot of discussion, debate about about this area right now as we speak. you know, I think these models tend to work best when the models are integrated. So, for example, having the behavioral, medical, and pharmacy dollars included. And it's particularly important when you have high-cost complex members in your plan because what you don't want to do, what happens when it's not that way? So let's say you get one group doing behavioral health, one group doing medical, and one group doing pharmacy. And they're at risk and they keep what they don't spend. So they now have incentive to cost shift to the other two silos. So the medical guys will start seeing some medical things as behavioral that maybe they didn't before. And they'll, they'll try to transfer them over to the behavioral side and vice versa. And that's been one of the issues with capitation. So ideally, it's good if someone's going to take on a capitated contract for a population, it's it's really ideally better for them to have all the costs included and develop a system of care within their group so that you have medical, behavioral, and pharmacy providers right there that, that are working with you closely to produce a result. I mean, that's the ideal situation. Now, to get there, to get to that from where we are today, you know, it's probably going to take some carved out risk arrangements, you know, initially. But ideally, I think that's really where the industry's headed. So pharmaceutical manufacturers also then should start figuring out how to do effectively value-based contracting. I would think so at some point. It's a little trickier there because it's a complicated industry, and but it's really getting that data on that side that's really going to drive value-based purchasing on the uh, PBM and pharmacy manufacturing side. Dr. Fowles, is there anything I neglected to ask you that you would like to mention right now? The one thing I would like to just add on this, and we talked about data and value-based purchasing and and evidence-based treatments, but I think if there's one thing that I think is really going to move the needle in healthcare in all these arenas, it's the ability to get people together to collaborate, meet, talk, and work on problems with each other. I spend my day doing healthcare consulting, but probably the thing that I find I spend most of my time with bringing different companies together who who were not aware of each other before, but bringing them together to solve a shared problem and then making that happen. More and more, 
you're seeing, you know, medical people talk with behavioral health people, mental health people talking with substance use people, pharmacy companies talking with all of them. And it's really, these problems are complex and multifactorial in nature. And so the ability to bring people together and collaborate and problem solve together is really probably, if there was one thing that I think is, you know, really going to change things, it's, it's that. Data is important, value-based purchasing is important, but if you don't have people working together and rowing in the same direction to achieve a result, it's tough to do. So that would be the one thing I would add. You can learn more about what Dr. Faust is working on on LinkedIn. Dr. Don Faust, thank you so much for being on Relentless South Value Podcast today. Thank you too. Appreciate it. Thanks, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.